Welcome back to your home inspector training. I am Garth Haslam, the home medic. Subject today is lead, lead-based paint, lead-based plumbing, lead-based solder. We're going to cover all of that, get you up to speed. Of course, no matter where you live within the United States, you're going to have clients that expect you to be up to speed on this. We're going to get you there. We're going to get you most of the way there. But again, and as always, what I'm training you on should be considered to be a kindergarten level training. And you're always going to want to do your own research. Make sure you're up to speed on conditions inside your own area. So the first thing you'll see as you start doing your research, if you go to the government website, state, federal, EPA, etc., they call lead a serious health hazard. And I consider those interesting words because, you know, I guess it's up to all of us to decide what the definition of serious means. Now, somebody like EPA, at least in other aspects that I have more personally dealt with, they will say radon, for example, will be the cause or the contributor to so many deaths per 100,000. Or they'll say, you know, so many deaths per community, and then they assume the community is 100,000. So they don't use language like this for lead because it doesn't necessarily cause death. What it does, and the training that I got a bazillion years ago, I'm going to say it was back in the 90s, was that it inhibits brain development in unborns and newborns. And the training that I got back then was basically, if you're not under five and you're not pregnant and have a baby in your belly, as my daughters would say, pretty much no risk. Now, that was the training that I got back in 1998. Since that time, it has been updated. Still, EPA, for example, says that it does inhibit brain development, and we're going to go over some of what that looks like. But they're also saying now that uh, while the primary risk factor is to children under six, unborns and newborns, there are some potential damages that can happen to adults as well. It's interesting that they mention on a number of the reputable websites that I reviewed that one of the best ways to protect a child from lead-based paint is actually to make sure they're getting a good diet. Apparently, the lead replaces certain metals that are required by a child, and apparently if those metals are already in a kid's diet, the lead doesn't absorb as well as perhaps otherwise. So we'll start with the kids because, you know, the 80-20 rule applies here too. The vast majority of the damage is going to be in children. So taking a look at that, like I say, it inhibits brain development. What that can look like is it can be nervous system damage, it can be kidney damage, it can be learning disabilities, it can be muscle coordination, speech and language. Now, as I look at that list, you know, the learning disabilities, muscle coordination, those sorts of things are nervous system related. Kidney damage, I am not a doctor, I don't pretend to be one, at least not today, and I'm thinking, you know, if you were to give a kid a large dose of paint, yeah, that's going to affect his kidney because it's the kidney that's got to process all that stuff. So for adults, you're going to have another set of issues. The EPA lists fertility problems as a potential, digestive issues, nerves, maybe memory and concentration, and muscle and joint pain. 
So how they come up with those, you know, again, I'm not a doctor. You're going to have to just take that list yourself. I can't explain what, why, and how. But, you know, again, you can imagine some of these. If your system is loaded up with lead, maybe the fertility problems come naturally. Similarly, if you've got a belly full of paint, I can only imagine there would be digestive issues, etc. The rest of these, uh, you know, they kind of look like the same sort of brain issues. In any case, every website lists the adults as a also-ran, where the primary risk is associated with unborns and newborn children. Lead-based paint was used prior to 1978. It was actually the better paint to use. The lead made the stuff a better sort of a material. You'll often find lead-based paint even in some of the better homes. Now, my experience is you're going around the property looking for, among other things, lead-based paint, is that you're most likely to find a problem where there's exterior paint. Maybe it's peeling. Maybe it's being sprayed by the sprinklers. Maybe it's just been there for a billion years. And almost always, I mean, it's been a number of years since we were in 1978, you might not have even survived 1978. You, unlike me, may not be old enough to remember 1978. So you can imagine that if there was lead-based paint that was painted onto the exterior of a home, it's probably been covered at least once and probably multiple times with newer paint. As long as that paint remains in good condition, you've got a nice seal. So again, you know, we've got the health risk to primarily unborns and newborns. So EPA lists as the pathways into the body, they say there's three ways to get it in. One would be dust in the lungs. And that's going to happen, for example, maybe you're out there sandblasting this paint to get it off of the exterior. Maybe, you know, I don't know anybody who actually sandblasts paint, but it could happen. Another would be lead-based paint in the food, which, again, I'm thinking the likelihood of this, you know, and the concentration, the volume, not likely. The third and the most common and the one that makes sense to me is you've got children that are eating dirt, and the dirt has paint that has settled into the soil, and it's just sitting there you got a child that goes out and physically eats that dirt. Obviously, if you got a child ingesting a whole bunch of dirt, there's more to be concerned about than just lead-based paint. I know in my own personal list of stories, I have some girls, and one of my daughters used to actually go out when she was, I'm going to say, about two-ish, and when my back was turned, she would just shovel the dirt into her mouth. She knew that I disapproved of her doing so, so she'd wait, and then she'd just eat just as much dirt as she could. And then it became up to me to try and dig the dirt out of her mouth and also to clean up the dirt out of the other end that made it into and through her system. Very gritty diapers, you can only imagine. So you do have children that eat dirt. It happens. And when that happens, and if that dirt that uh, my daughter was eating had some lead in it, then it might have explained some things. But let's just say that, uh, you know, that is the primary pathway in to the body. And at that point, the soil and, and the lead-based paint that's in there is going to be what causes the problems, the brain development. So now I think I've painted a picture for you 
that identifies how lead can potentially get into somebody's system and get in there. So if you are the inspector and you're going around the perimeter of a home and the paint looks great, obviously there's no paint chips that are lying in the soil. You know, usually, of course, unless somebody's got a very active garden there, if paint chips and falls into the soil, it's going to lay there for years. You're still going to notice those paint chips sitting there, and that would be a tip-off. As the inspector, the only thing you can test is the outer layer. Sometimes you can actually peel a layer off or just take a layer that is peeling and exposed And using a test strip of your own, you can test the outside of that paint chip. You can test the inside. And if there's any number of layers in between, usually you can get a hairline crack that you can test there too. You know, if you want to get those lead test strips, they're available on the internet or you can contact me about how to get those. So that is how you as the home inspector can do lead testing. What you do not want to do, one of the primary rules associated with home inspection is that you do not change the house. What a lead-based paint professional tester is going to do after he has received permission to do so is he's going to mark off a square area and he's going to score that area and, and use tools to remove the paint. You are not going to do that because you do not change the house in any way. You leave it as you found it. And helping yourself to chunks of their house and their paint is not okay and may end up being a career ender for you. You can either refer that out or you can get yourself certified and learn how to do that and then do what you need to do only after you receive clear direction and approval from the people who own the home. Again, what you can do is you can go looking for paint chips that are loose or that are on the ground, and you can test those, and that's a fairly simple thing to do. How to sample. Again, there's two ways. There's the home inspector way, and then there's the lead remediation professional way. The home inspector way, get those chips. You can test them with the little sample kits. I've found those do a pretty good job. As the remediator, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I'm not training remediators, but you're going to make sure that you use a screw-top centrifuge. What you don't use is a Ziploc baggie because stuff can fall out of the baggie and then you've got theoretical contamination. They create an outline, they score that outline, they use a cutting tool to remove the paint inside the outline, and they send it to the lab. Now, the difference between just finding a chip and doing what I just described is let's say that you have six layers of paint on some part of the exterior, and let's say that one of those layers, maybe three deep, is actually the lead-based paint. If this sample is tested front and back, and let's assume for a moment that there's not any hairline cracks that allow you to test the innards, you may not be able to identify the lead-based paint that way. By contrast, if you do the more involved system, then you're testing the entire paint chip. Obviously, if you do have six paint layers, and maybe layer number three is contaminated, it could still fall onto the soil. It could still be eaten by a child, and at that point, it could still damage the child's brain development. So I think I've painted a pathway there. Again, dust in the lungs 
can get into the system, dust in the food, and then eating dirt. So the first two are about dust. And, you know, the next question that may come to your mind is, you know, what causes the dust? You know, obviously paint that is in good condition is not going to just provide a continuous flow of dust into the house. So what does cause the dust? You know, that may be, like I say, the primary thing that comes to mind for me is if you've got remediators in the area and they're doing a crappy job, maybe they're sandblasting and causing a lot of dust, some of that can get into the house. Other than that, I don't see a lot of pathways for dust in any volume to get into the house. One of the places that you can and probably should test if you are doing lead testing inside the house would be blinds and shutters because dust is going to land on those and stay. So that will be one of the areas that has the greatest level of contamination. Okay, again, I am not training you on how to become a uh, lead remediator. I'm training you on how to become a home inspector inspecting for lead. So there is more to be learned on the subject. You'll have to get that on your own. Okay, inspection points. You're looking primarily on the exterior of the house, and this is why. Uh, peeling paint generally only happens on the outside. Inside, peeling paint, yeah, not likely. I just don't see it, at least in the areas that I inspect. I have seen one home where I tested a painted foundation in an unfinished basement, and that paint was actually lead-based paint. So it does happen on the exterior, but you've got a set of conditions that had to occur for that paint to be there. One is that this foundation was painted, which is odd enough. It had to have been painted prior to 1978, and then it had to have been not repainted since 1978, and then it has to have been not finished since 1978. That is an unlikely scenario, but I have found it once. So you can find paint, potentially, on the interior of the house. It's unlikely. So again, if you've got maybe a home that was built in, I don't know, 1977, and then the first thing they did was paint with lead-based paint, since that time, it's probably been painted two, three, four times. As long as that paint remains in good enough condition that you're not getting peeling, and as long as no child is actually gnawing on the wall... I don't see a pathway, and that's just my opinion. You'll have to draw your own opinions about that. And that is what a lot of lead-based paint remediators will do, at least as of the time that I am recording this, is they will scrape off what will come off, they will capture that, and then they'll just repaint, leaving, admittedly, the vast majority of the lead-based paint on the house because it just doesn't come off that easily, leaving themselves with another remediation job to be done in another five years or so. So EPA, while out of uh, one side they're saying that lead is a serious health hazard, they also say that lead is not usually a hazard if it's in good condition. And again, the reason for this is because a person's got to get that inside your system. And if you've got uh, paint that is in good condition, that's sitting on the wall, the only way to get that into your body is to gnaw. And I don't know about you, but I don't know uh, anybody who does that, whether they're adult or child. Uh, it just kind of doesn't happen. Let's spend a minute on lead-based plumbing. 
So you'll have lead pipe, and we do talk about this in the plumbing section as well. But if you scrape lead with, let's say, a knife, you'll notice lead-based plumbing is going to be a lot more bendable, malleable. And if you scrape that with a knife, you're going to see a shiny surface come up. If that's the case, you've got lead going there. Similarly, lead solder. It can happen. In many cases, the lead solder postdates the use of lead pipe. If you've got a home that is built, you know, very old, let's say 1920, there is a possibility for lead plumbing. And then the lead solder is a lot more recent. I'm going to say the 1980s. When you've got a home that are those age, you're going to want to look for that too. Now, again, EPA has taken hold of this issue, and they have required public water systems, city water systems, to make sure that their plumbing is of a chemical nature so that rather than erode the pipe, it deposits on the pipe. So if you imagine the interior of the pipe, there's two ways for a pipe to die. One is that it fills up with stuff, and the other one that it erodes to the point that it leaks. So EPA, because of lead, did not want any erosion of lead plumbing or lead solder to get into the water, so they've actually required that the chemistry be changed so that you get deposition on the interior of the pipes. That deposition of usually calcium and similar materials is going to coat the interior of the pipe so that you have less lead concentration inside the plumbing. You can only imagine that if there is erosion of plumbing, at some point in time the erosion will get to the point that the pipe is completely eroded, you've got a leak, and then you've got that drama, and then the pipe gets replaced. So the further and further away we get from, you know, 1910, 1920, 1930, the less likelihood there is of you and I as home inspectors seeing lead plumbing. Okay, there is your training on lead in, uh, in paint, in plumbing, etc. You can use that information to look and be intelligent on lead-related issues. Sometimes I run into a person, a, a client, who is very concerned about one particular issue. Maybe they've read a headline or two about maybe it's lead, maybe it's radon, you know, maybe it's polybutylene plumbing. Uh, whatever it is, but they are very concerned about that. From my point of view, the best kind of service is knowledgeable service. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that you serve those people using the knowledge that you have on that subject. So, for example, if we're talking about lead, you know, and they're very concerned and they want you to sample, of course you can sample. But before you do so, you'll want to mention that, you know, look, lead is usually only a primary risk to unborns and newborns. And uh, you might want to just ask the wife if you can do it unawkwardly. You know, she is pregnant or planning to be pregnant anytime soon. If we're talking about grandmas, you know, maybe they might not be pregnant, but maybe they have grandkids that might be on the way. You know, you can just sit down and have that discussion with them if you feel like you can do so without being a little bit too much of a prior into their personal life. 
So, again, it all comes down to respecting them. I don't have a lot of hesitance in my clients because they can tell that I am focused on them and their concerns and making sure that they are taken care of. So when I ask questions like, you know, are you planning to be pregnant anytime soon, never comes off as an awkward sort of a conversation. You can maybe find ways of your own to perhaps rephrase that, maybe on the level of if you're planning on being pregnant anytime soon, then lead-based paint can be more of a risk. If you're not, then it's less of a risk, and here's why, and you can go down that road. So what that gets me to is if you are focused first on your client and less on the actual technical issues that are going on, they'll get that, they'll appreciate it, and it will result in you being in less trouble, and you'll just get phone calls with orders rather than have to do continuous phone calls with you having to explain why you're better than 13 other people. All right, go out there. Thank you for being part of the team. Make me proud.